got to get to rock and get my hat off the rack. I got to boogie woogie like a knife in the back. So be my guest, you've got nothing to lose. Won't you let me take you on a sea cruise? Hello and welcome to episode 1508 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hey. We'll be doing a season preview podcast today, so in just a moment, we'll be talking to Sam Fortier of The Washington Post about the Washington Nationals, followed by Alec Lewis of The Athletic about the Kansas City Royals. Before we begin... I have to tell you about a story I just read that astounded me. So this is a story by Phil Miller in the Star Tribune, and it's about Minnesota Twins reliever Zach Littell, right-handed reliever, had a pretty good year last year, but it's not as much about his pitching as it is about his passion for taking cruises. He takes cruises every opportunity he gets. Evidently, his family has been cruising for most of his life. So when he was seven, his great-grandmother organized a big family reunion, and they all got on a cruise ship. And ever since then, they've been committed cruise takers, and they go for holidays. They cruise for Thanksgiving. He cruised on his honeymoon. He cruises with his wife's family. He cruises all the time. But there are some stats in the story about exactly how much he cruises. You want to, can I get, are you want to, <laughs> you want to give me a chance to guess? All right. All right. Give me, let's see if I can. How many days or how many nights would you guess Zach Littell spent on a cruise ship in 2019? Okay. So this is an active major league baseball player. Yes. Who presumably cannot cruise at all. One would think. From mid-February through mid-October right. uh, with the very brief except like he could do like a Catalina cruise on uh, the All-Star break. <laughs> yeah, if he needs a fix, maybe. 64. Nope. 84. That's 84. impossible. <laughs> I just, all right, so I crunched the numbers. I just did the math on this. So Twins pitchers and catchers reported on February 14th of last year, the Twins were eliminated from the playoffs on October 7th, and Latell was on the ALDS roster. So during that entire time, that almost eight months, he was ineligible to cruise just about <laughs> unless he's sneaking away to do cruises or all-star break cruise or rehab assignment cruise or something. But let's assume he was not cruising. So that's 236 days, 65% of the year in which he couldn't cruise. That leaves 129 days. And he was on cruise ships for 84 of those days. That means that he was on cruise ships for 65% of his days outside of the baseball season. So let's presume that let's say he went on a cruise day one yeah. and then and then <laughs> stayed on the cruise until 60 how many 81 days 80, 84 84 days were up. What would that take us to? When does this throwing program start? <laughs> uh I don't know. It says that he had a new routine this year. He went to some new training facility and did things a little differently. So he was like <laughs> actually training. He was not solely cruising. So I don't know exactly when he would have had to build up. Here's the other thing though. He got married in November, I think in early November. 
And that did give him an opportunity for another cruise because (laughs) he cruised to Puerto Rico with his wife on their honeymoon. But you would think that preparing for the wedding and organizing the wedding probably cuts into your cruising time, too. So could he have cruised between the twins' elimination and his wedding less than a month later? Could he have squeezed in a cruise there? Maybe. But... I don't know how you could, if you have 129 total days on which to cruise, how could you cruise on 84 of them? That's like two-thirds of the time he was cruising, (laughs) and one-third of the time he was on land. That's an unbelievable cruise-to-non-cruise ratio. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that cruise ships, they, they, they're pretty steady, you know, they, they, you don't feel, it's not like being on a rowboat, but mm-hmm. I wonder if you could train on a cruise, or if yeah. it if the the movement makes it impossible to practice throwing, if like you would, right. if if you, all your coordination when you got back to land would be off, and it would all be basically worthless what you did <laughs> on the cruise, because like you're you're the world's best pitcher from a moving mound, yeah. but but on a on a stationary mound you haven't practiced very much. Right, with sea legs, it's completely different. Yeah, I don't know because uh, I mean cruise ships have gyms and fitness facilities, but is there somewhere you can throw? They're not going to have a mound. Where are you going to throw on the deck in the middle of the night or something? How? Where would there be? T- I guess you could do like pull down drills if you could just find a wall to throw into or something. But it it does seem like it would be limiting. But he is a diamond level status on Royal Caribbean. He has gone to Curacao and Aruba and Cancun and Martinique. He says he's been on upwards of 40 cruises, 40 career cruises. He's only 24 years old, and he was drafted out of high school, so he's been a professional baseball player for the last seven years or so. So it's a pretty incredible cruise rate, but he says he gets free drinks from 4 to 6 p.m. because of his diamond-level status, and uh, he likes to travel in a way that when he goes to sleep, he's in one place, and when he wakes up, he's in another place. So... I guess I see the appeal. I'm just really impressed by the itinerary and the planning required here. I feel really sad for him too because I mean I just googled cruise industry and here I, are the right coronavirus here are the top right? issues. Here are the top headlines. Number one, could it dis- coronavirus? Could it destroy yeah. the cruise ship industry? Number two, cruise lines scramble to respond to coronavirus. Number three, <laughs> Virgin Voyages cancels. Number four, Carnival Cruise issuing refunds to pat patients <laughs> headline five is cruising still safe will i be yeah. sure? i mean yeah well hopefully by the time the baseball season is over it'll be safe to cruise again i guess we'll see i wonder if he's ever done a mid-baseball mid, season mid-season cruise because yeah. he must have had an injury at some point that you he was coming cruise back from. when you have an injury though you know you probably it's not, don't it's i don't think it's general i think particularly if you're i think probably this is true for everybody but particularly if you're not um you know a, a major league veteran i don't right. think that that's just like well go home time i yeah. think that usually like you work super hard on the rehab like it's yeah. it's more work to rehab it's probably easier no it's probably not easier to get time <laughs> off when you're active but it's hard to get time off when you're yeah if he'd had tommy john or something maybe he could get away for a while i, I don't think he has though so i don't know all the more impressive that he has managed to do this and worked around the baseball calendar have you cruised? I went on a cruise when I was eight. Uh-huh. I yeah. won uh, I won bingo. My grandpa entered me in bingo 
and I won, mm-hmm. and I was really excited because I won eighty dollars, and I was—it wow. was just the That's most money. I, I had never had eighty dollars. Get yeah. out of here, right? And so then I, I get back to my cabin, and my dad informs me that, well, he says congratulations, but since I did not pay for my entry, he decides that the only fair thing would be to split the winnings with my grandfather, who paid for my ticket, which seems fair, mm-hmm. but also my sister and my cousin, Ugh. who had also had tickets paid for by my grandfather. He felt like we were in a uh, pooled pooled lottery, basically. <laughs> so I had to give each of them $20. I only ended up with 20 bucks. Oh, no. Which oh. was still a lot. Yeah, it's a I lot guess of so. Yeah. Well, I went on one cruise also when I was 10. I did a Alaska cruise, and I liked That's it. That's where I did. Mine yeah. was also Alaska. Was it Carnival? Uh, it was uh, Princess Cruises. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's it yeah. was – okay. I was also on Princess, and my recollection is that we were on the love boat. That it was <laughs> oh, no. the actual love boat, like the boat that they used for like love boat shots or something. <laughs> I don't think I was. All I really remember from the cruise was that Princess Diana died on the day the cruise started. And the other thing is that I spent most of the cruise playing Microsoft Flight Simulator in in the game room that they had for passengers, which is probably not really the point of cruises, but it was really fun for me. But I guess neither of us got hooked on it the way that seven-year-old Zach with hell did, because I have not cruised since. I've considered it from time to time. Every now and then, I asked Jesse if maybe she'd want to take a cruise, because she never has. But boy, he really got bit by the cruise bug early. I'm uh, looking here, and Princess has a page for its love boat connection, and it says that the love boat was filmed aboard many of Princess's ships in destinations around the globe. So it sounds like that that is something that they can sell to many, many different customers at many, many different destinations. Uh-huh. Well, I admire Zach because sometimes when a player has an off-the-field passion, it's something where baseball people will wonder, does he care more about that than baseball? Is he really actually invested in this baseball thing, or does he only care about cruises? And the story does mention that he was stressed when he discovered in December while on a cruise that he had missed calls from Twins coaches Mike Bell and Wes Johnson, who I guess were trying to check in with him over the winter, and he was on a cruise and uh, was not getting reception at the time. So good for him, I guess, for indulging his passion, and last year at least it did not affect his performance. He does note in the story that he has one unfulfilled cruise goal. He'd like to take a transatlantic cruise going from, for instance, the East Coast to Greece, but those trips take three weeks or close to it, and he can't stop training long enough to take one of those cruises. So he says, I'll do that one after I'm retired from baseball, hopefully a long time from now. So his baseball ambitions come before his cruise bucket list, but it's good to have goals. That's nice. Keep cruising, Zach. And if that bingo money is burning a hole in your pocket, I just saw, courtesy of the Facebook group, that there are active auctions right now on eBay for the screen-used baseballs from Knives Out. You can bid on the baseballs from Knives Out that we discussed the significance of not long ago. How many are there? There's one that says Knives Out Benoit Blanc, and it's Daniel Craig's screen-used handkerchief and baseball set. So it's the monogrammed BB handkerchief with a real-looking baseball and also a plastic baseball. And one of them was just a prop that was not on the screen, and the other was. And there's a separate listing that is Knives Out Harlan, Christopher Plummer's character's used baseball mug and secret letter. So it's a baseball that was on the screen, plus the mug that was on his desk, plus that secret letter that he leaves 
And right now, at least, the bidding is up to $125 for the Blanc baseballs and $177.50 for the Harlan baseball and other assorted items. And I guess if you're interested in bidding, I have probably just driven up the price potentially by mentioning this on the podcast, but auctions end on Tuesday, so you still have time to submit a bid. Okay. All right. We will take a quick break, and then we will cruise along to our Washington Nationals preview with Sam Fortier. It is time to talk about the world champion, Washington Nationals, and we are joined by the Washington Post's Sam Fortier, who just finished watching the Nationals take on the Mets in Port St. Lucie. Hey, Sam, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you. So Sam and I have written before about the tendency for world championship teams to seemingly try to bring back members of their World Series winning roster at a very elevated rate, a higher rate even than World Series losing teams. And sometimes that can be a negative if you bring back a playoff hero who isn't actually that great, but you have a sentimental attachment to him and you want to keep the gang together. Sometimes it's just fine. The Nationals did some of that this winter. Jan Gomes and Howie Kendrick and Steven Strasburg, of course, and Estrubal Cabrera and Daniel Hudson and Ryan Zimmerman and so on. But there was one very notable name that the Nationals did not bring back, and that's Anthony Rendon. So how hard... Do you think they tried to bring back Rendon? I know they said that they could not afford both Strasburg and Rendon, which seems sort of strange because they weren't in line for massive raises relative to last season, and you've got World Series winning revenue coming in there. So did they just not think they could keep him? Did they really not want to spend that much, or did they not think they needed him? What went into Anthony Rendon not being a Washington National in 2020? Right. I think the first part of that is, the Lerner family, the ownership group, said at the outset that they could really only keep one of Steven Strasburg or Anthony Rendon. And when Steven Strasburg signs first, you kind of get that indication that, that they might make a good faith effort to Anthony, but, but that it probably wasn't going to work out. I think the, the basis of this is that the Lerner family, despite being the richest owners in, in baseball, have always preferred to stay below the luxury tax, to stay below the CBT. And so, you know, once, once you put a seven-year, $245 million contract on the books, like with Steven Strasburg, and then you have, you know, other high-priced guys, even in the rotation with, with Max Scherzer, you start doing the numbers, and, and Anthony Rendon was going to be a logistical difficulty if you wanted to operate under the rules which the learners have, have always preferred, or at least in the, in the last few years have preferred to operate by. And the replacement for Rendon, I suppose, I don't know, I'm looking at the roster resource depth charts at Fangraphs right now, and Carter Keyboom is slotted in at third base. There's no real one-to-one replacement for Anthony Rendon out there, but how good can Keyboom be, and will they try to mix and match with some of the other infielders they've added, like Starlin Castro and Astrubal Cabrera still being around? 
Yeah, this is, I think, the existential question of the national spring training, at least, and as far as, you know, as, as big a player can play on a baseball team. Carter Teboom is the, the top prospect. He is the projected answer at third base. Eddie Martinez said in January and has maintained throughout spring training that Carter Teboom is going to get every chance to win this job. But as we've seen throughout the first few games, uh, Carter Teboom has really struggled defensively at third base. He is a natural shortstop. That's what he was drafted as. And last year, when Trey Turner was hurt early in the season, Carter came up and he had a, about a 10-game stint, and he really struggled defensively. I think it just, you know, I think the errors got in his head, and, and they sort of compounded a little bit. And so, you know, even in Milwaukee, I remember, you know, just simple ground balls were, were giving him trouble. And, and so far through spring, we've seen the same. Last year, they shipped him to third once Anthony, I think, started heating up uh, in September, and he played 10 games there, and he made four errors. And we, we have not seen a ton of improvement early. You know, he, he had a ball just go through his legs, a pretty routine grounder yesterday. And, and today in, in Port St. Lucie, he uh, had a couple tough at-bats. And Dave Martinez, the manager, was asked, hey, do you think that, that his defensive struggles are contributing maybe to his struggles at the plate recently? And Dave Martinez said, yeah, I think he might be pressing a little bit, which in Davey Martinez parlance, which is, you know, obviously always understated, I think it means we're seeing a lot of pressing from, from a young Carter Keeboom. So whether he figures it out, I think, is very important because they, they do not have another long-term answer. I think you would see as Dribble Cabrera, you know, play there. He, he, that's the position he played in Texas last year before he joined the Nationals. And, and maybe Starling Castro, but they want him to be their everyday second baseman. They've, they've said that throughout the spring. If Carter Keeboom can't figure it out, I think the Nationals are, are in trouble. Keeboom, I want to stay on this for a minute because sometimes you have prospects who who come up and they struggle in the majors and and they're in a way their prospect status would have been better if they had not had a brief appearance in the majors. Like if they had just been in AAA, they would be that like magical creature that we haven't seen in person yet, who is just dominating in the minors. But the fact that they come up and struggle like puts this impression in our mind that like, oh, well, maybe they're overmatched at the majors or something. And and Kibum had a particularly short stint in the majors last year. It was also a particularly bad one. It was he was on pace over the a full season of being a negative 15 war player. Um <laughs> Uh, 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 and 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 I think even more sort of significantly, or maybe more mysteriously to to those of us on the outside, is that he didn't get a call up in September, and then he uh, that uh, you know of course he was also not on the postseason roster, and the Nationals had a really quite weak postseason bench, and so if you know if there was a feeling that he was like really major league ready, he would have been maybe an exciting player to add to the postseason roster, and they obviously did not do that, and they didn't think that. So I don't know. I guess I guess I'm just wondering, like, how much do you think that those eleven games matter to what we should be thinking of him? Because he is still a really top notch prospect and and had a fantastic year in the minors. Do those eleven games mean anything to you? Do you think they mean? I mean, I guess you just sort of suggested that maybe they do mean something to the Nationals if if they learned if they thought that they saw something in his makeup i think the most important thing was i think those games meant something to to carter himself and he told my beat partner jesse doherty last week that that was really the first time he failed in public and i think he took that really hard and i think that that definitely affected his play so when he came up the first time like you were referencing so i think what we've seen is is he has a tendency to to maybe let those build up uh, let those miscues build up and, and take them, you know, from the field to the plate. And I think maybe 
if if we can learn anything, obviously, you know, plenty of prospects have have had bad debuts or you know struggled at least in their first you know short amount of time in in the majors and have figured it out. Uh, and, and Carter, you know, I should be clear, has still plenty of time to do that. But I think the thing that we're seeing so far is that the compilation of those moments of the the ground ball going through his legs that's going to affect the thing that that even that they expect him to do, which is hit. I mean, Dave Martinez said at the end of the year, you know, we know he's a work in progress defensively. We know his development as third has been hampered by us moving him all over the field because originally last year, you know, they thought, okay, Brian Dozier's not a long-term answer at second. Maybe Carter can play second. We can have Anthony Rendon at third, Trey Turner at short, and, and Carter at second. So they did shift him around a lot. But he, but he was saying, you know, throughout those things, we still expect him to hit. And um, for him to, I believe he struck out a third of his plate appearances so far this spring or something close to that, you know, that indication is, is something that you can't weather um, for the first month of the season because the Nationals, they started 1931 last year and that worked out, but they are definitely not trying to repeat the same thing this, this spring. Yeah, did you see something in the clubhouse last year as you were following the team? Was it a noticeably different atmosphere when the team started out that slow and then when it became the hottest team in baseball for months and months? Because it was striking, I think, when Sam and I were doing our independent ball experiment with the Sonoma Stompers. And when the team was winning, everyone was happy and it was great and there were no problems. And when the team was losing, everyone was at each other's throat. And I'm wondering to what extent that was true of the Nationals early last year and to what extent they were just resilient and always believed that they were going to get in gear eventually because they were a talented team. Yeah, it's funny because that was the first baseball season I've ever covered, but the more experienced... Good one to start with. Yeah, yeah, it it certainly set the bar high. But the more experienced members of the beat or our columnist Tom Boswell, who's been doing this for 50 years, they sort of thought, you know, hey, things could go sideways pretty quick, especially in May when they got swept by the Mets in New York four games um, to hit 1931. Uh, when they came back, I just remember, you know, I was in Milwaukee, the series before that Mets series. They got swept there too, and, and the injuries were absurd. I think Kurt Suzuki was hitting like fourth or fifth, and, and Dave Martinez, would, you know, he would eventually laugh at like the lineups he rolled out, and it was just quiet. I think like the, the biggest thing about that early season clubhouse was how quiet it would be um, when you get in there. Because there would always be one or two guys who had just taken a red eye from Fresno, where their AAA team is. Obviously, they didn't plan that. That's not how they wanted it to go. But there'd be some guy who'd stayed up all night in an airport or, you know, being on a plane, getting to wherever they were. And it was just, it was just quiet and eerie. And obviously, that changes <laughs> amazingly when they pick up Gerardo Parra, who is not, you know, thought to be the savior. But he comes in and he's like the most energetic I think person I've ever been in like a clubhouse or locker room with, you know, blasting music at 10 a.m. on Sunday or stopping to get, you know, those fancy, those funny sunglasses from like a free promotion on the way to the ballpark. What I mean, the winning cures all, of course, but winning and then having the amount of fun they had, I think was directly linked to Gerardo Parra, Baby Shark, the walk-up song, Brian Dozier, who knows Spanish, knowing Calma, all of that chemistry was, was built organically once they started winning. Do you hear Baby Shark in your dreams? Yes, it, it haunts me. It, it, like last June when I hit her for the first time, I had no idea what it was. Uh, and, and the writers at our paper who have kids say you're very lucky. But yeah, I, I, I do distinctly remember at one point in September after the whole stadium did it, it like it became such a thing. I, I do remember at one point, like, you know, sitting 
sitting in a restaurant somewhere and just like hearing that in my mind and be like, okay, this, this baseball season at some point needs to end. Yeah. Did the song report to spring training or is, is it just retired now? <laughs> they actually have played it during the seventh inning stretch at one point. And I asked the closer, Sean Doolittle, how do you, how do you plan on that? That to me was kind of a symbol of, especially because Gerardo Parra is not here. That's sort of a symbol of how much goodwill, how much chemistry can you take forward into the new season, but at the same time, not rely on the old tricks that, that kind of got you or, or made you feel like it got you over the top for, for the World Series? Um, and he said, that's a great question. This, this group obviously is a lot of the same players, so he envisions a lot of the same uh, tactics. But without, without Gerardo Parra, I think you won't see Baby Shark too much more this season. I was slightly surprised, I mean, given what Ben was talking about, that World Series teams tend to try to reconstruct as closely as possible what they had just won with, that Para so quickly signed in Japan yeah. and, you know, left that sort of vacancy in the, uh, you know, in the, in the World Series, you know, like kind of mood. Were you surprised at all? Do you think there was any chance that they were wanting to bring him back? Did, did he jump at Japan before, you know, the Nationals could resolve that? Or or did they really just like, was he, like, are we overstating the degree to which he was a uh, seen as a crucial factor in that clubhouse? I think clubhouse chemistry-wise, he, he was a crucial factor. On the field, not as much. My sense is that I'm not sure how interested the Nationals would have been in a reunion. Uh, when he arrived, he was a crucial player. I mean, he broke up a Ryu no-hitter in L.A., and then the next night or the night before, hit a grand slam, which won the game. And then at the end of the year, he, he was really hot, had a home run and a double. and you know, But, but in between, I mean, he, I think he at one point went three for 45, and it just was he was crucial to the defensive development of Victor Robles and Juan Soto, two very young, talented outfielders. But in terms of what he was actually able to bring to the team with his bat in the field himself, I'm not sure that the production was there to merit a, a reunion beyond maybe, hey, you could be the tw- let's use that 26th roster spot as as like the hype man spot. Yeah, that's really interesting because it maybe tells you something about how teams treat clubhouse value versus on-field value. If if Para was so valuable that he became this catalyst and transformed a team that was on its way to a losing season to a World Series winning season, you'd think that that would earn you a deal or that the team would say, hey, this is actually worth something. And the fact that they didn't, I don't know whether that means that ultimately it just does come down to your stats or whether teams think, well, clubhouse chemistry can't really be bottled and it's valuable when you have it, but it's kind of this ephemeral thing that comes and goes. And maybe in one year, Gerardo Parra is the key that unlocks the clubhouse and the next year he's not. So you might as well move on. I don't know which it would be. Right. And I don't want to, I mean, he, Gerardo Parra, I do think was a, a crucial part of that and I think inextricable to their rise them coming back from 1931 I think was largely due to them getting healthy again right. you know Trey Turner coming back and, and all their other pieces and their rotation returning to you know their normal status and the bullpen being somehow less than historically terrible I mean they, they were I think were for the first two months the, the worst bullpen you know that baseball had seen in years so all those things, once those things found their level, I think it was the, the extra boost that par, that Parra gave that, that really put them over the top. Nah, it was all Parra. <laughs> I, 
there's a quote I think about every year about the World Series team. This is a quote from Theo Epstein from a few years ago where he said, the only thing I know for sure is that whatever team wins the World Series, their particular style of play will be completely in vogue and trumpeted from the rooftops by the media all offseason and in front offices as the way to win. Is there anything about the Nationals that you think fits that? Is there anything about the way that they built the team, the way that they approached team building, the way that they approached gameplay itself, the balance of talent on the team, anything at all that that you have noticed or that you think would be copyable or, you know, appealing to other teams? I think the the more than just finding that one lightning in a bottle Gerardo Parra character in terms of clubhouse chemistry, I do think the way that the one of the reasons the Nationals weathered that tough start to, to kind of put themselves not in a in a deeper hole was was finding those veterans on the margins. You know, I think like Howie Kendrick is a great example, or maybe Jan Gomes or, or Kurt Suzuki, those guys that that maybe you would replace with a cheaper, younger guy. Because I do think you know they they banded together and eventually called themselves the Viejos, which is Spanish for old, I, I believe. But I think. You know that sort of team building. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's going to swing all of baseball back one way. But I think it, it might get. It might get an older player. You know, another look or a little more consideration in terms of. Hey, do we want this guy on a? You know, a two like a like Starling Castro is not a perfect one to one example, but his two year twelve million dollar deal with the Nationals to me is is maybe sort of more indicative of of okay, we could find a, a good minor leaguer to maybe put in the majors a little bit sooner than we'd expect. Um, but, but I think maybe that's something um, that they could do or that you might see a little bit more of. So the bullpen has been a problem for the Nationals for years now, and they've really recycled relievers, and they've turned over their bullpen a few times, and they can't quite ever seem to get a completely reliable unit. And I guess the big move this winter was signing Will Harris. So if you can beat him, make him join you, I guess is the thought process there. But Will Harris has been great for years now. So what's the level of confidence that if this team does get to October again, we won't be talking about, well, they have uh, three reliable pitchers and, and a few starters who are working in relief. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it, having those three relievers. And I think they're expecting a domino effect. They really like Wander Suero as kind of their fourth guy. And he really fell off the end of last year because he pitched 70 innings. Because at the beginning of the year, Dave Martinez really felt like he could only trust Sean Doolittle and Wander Suero. So they see this as sort of a, you add one more or two more bullpen arms in terms of Hudson and Harris, that kind of affects you, you know, down the line and, and it makes everyone better. And I think even before the postseason, I think a big part of getting there, I think, you know, Dave Martinez was telling us today, he really expects to lean on those relievers early in the year to ensure that his starters who threw a lot more, Patrick Corbin, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, he wants to ensure those guys aren't hitting, you know, 120 pitches in April or May. So he wants to use a reliable bullpen to to maybe be a little more cautious with his starters than he would otherwise be and, and kind of hopefully build a bridge and allow them to recuperate and, and build back up into the pitchers they are in time to make that stretch run. So uh, Max Scherzer last June was as good as any, you know, as any pitcher like ever, right? For a seven start period, he had 79 strikeouts in 52 innings. He had a 0.87 ERA. And before that stretch, he already had the best FIP in, in, in the National League. And I think at that point, it was 
probably it would have been a, close to a consensus that Max Scherzer was the best pitcher in baseball. And then he dealt with nagging injuries for the next month and missed most of the next you know month and a half and was kind of not as dominant the rest of the way. So, I don't know, maybe off, maybe just not as dominant. And then, you know, for all of his, the talk about how crucial he and Strasburg were in the postseason, for the most part, with one exception, he wasn't all that dominant in the postseason either. Now, so I'm not, I'm not obviously Max Scherzer is still one of the very best pitchers in baseball. And so, I, I mean, I, I'm not asking, is he going to be good? I think he is going to be good. But do you have any sense that his position as the best pitcher in baseball, has that crested? Is is there like a, a sort of a lost momentum there? Or was whatever was nagging him in the summer still affecting him in the fall? And was whatever was nagging him in the summer the sort of thing that you think could very easily have, have been remedied completely by by now? It's really tough to tell because if you ask Max Scherzer, and, and I'm not even just talking about the media either. Like, I think if Dave Martinez, you know, asked Max Scherzer today, you know, do you feel okay? Do you feel like you're completely over what was bothering you? Last summer, I think he would say yes, because he was saying that the entire postseason until the morning of game five of the World Series, he wakes up and he literally falls out of bed, cannot move his right arm. His wife has to, like, dress him to get him to the ballpark. I mean, I think we will only be able to tell at the beginning of this season because he's kind of gone through his program, he says he's 100%. I think the question of, is he the best pitcher in baseball? Can he reach the heights that, that he did before the injury last season? I think that is completely valid. It's just going to be really tough to say. And I mean, it, it's even a question, not just is he the best pitcher in the game, but you know, he's going to be, he's 36. At what point is there just not enough for the tires to, to really let him like keep being this guy? And I think like that's a really, it's a good question. It's a valid question. And he'll say he's fine, but until we see the results this year, I think it's going to be really tough to determine exactly where he's at in comparison to that dominant stretch. Everyone who does not already root for the Nationals fell in love with Juan Soto last October. He is more than a year younger than Carter Keboom, and he is phenomenal. But I think I didn't fully appreciate just how charismatic he was after his rookie season when I knew how great a player he was, but I knew the numbers and I sort of thought, oh, this guy's going to get overshadowed by Ronald Acuna, whom he was often compared to. And I think we all learned, those of us who didn't know it already last postseason, that no, he is as riveting and charismatic and watchable as anyone in baseball. The Soto shuffle and the demonstrative expressions and celebrations and on top of the talent. So was that always there and maybe people who weren't watching the Nationals every day didn't know it? Or did he kind of come out of his shell and show more of his personality as he became more of an established big leaguer? I think it was partly always there. The, the Soto shuffle hit new, new heights in the postseason for sure. Um, and I think he kind of rose to that occasion. He's not a guy who I think enjoys fame in the sense that he likes what it gets him, although I'm sure he does, but I mean, he spent, you know, most of the off season in the DR with his family, but it, it sticks out to me. Like, you know, during when, when he first came up and people wanted his autograph, it, it seemed, and even, and even last season, it seemed like he just enjoyed that, that people wanted his autograph. And he thought it was like interesting, like, Oh, you all want to see me. Like, this is kind of just fascinating to be around. And I think a, a good indicative story of, of kind of, who Juan Soto is or, or why he is charismatic is because, you know, when, when he hits that home run against the Astros and he carries the, the bat to first, echoing Alex Bregman from a few innings earlier, 
and, and he was asked about it after the game, like, did you do it to show him up or to get even? And he was like, no, I saw it, and it looked fun, so I did it. And I think that's the perfect encapsulation of who Juan Soto is. It's just if, he, if it works for him, if he thinks it looks fun, that's just what he's going to do because, like, that's the way he was raised to play the game. That, to me, is, is sort of what he's like on the, on the day-to-day. Uh, and it just so happened that on the biggest stage, it turned out to be some of the biggest moments. Another national who is older than Juan Soto is Victor Robles. And Victor Robles, great glove, immensely valuable as a fielder last season, but looked sort of exposed in the World Series at the plate. And that sort of highlighted some issues he had had as a hitter all season long. So do you think that the plate discipline and whatever else ails him is on the point of improving, or will he just be a glove-first guy, which is not bad? No, the, I, I do think that's a, a big point of emphasis this spring uh, with hitting coach Kevin Long. We saw in the postseason, you know, pitchers started throwing him outside early in the year, so he adjusted by, by getting close to the plate, and then pitchers attacked inside because it was a little more uncomfortable. And we saw, I think, him get picked apart in the postseason a lot with with inside fastballs and then outside breaking balls. And especially the breaking balls, he had a lot of trouble with. And, and the few change-ups he saw, I think he only hit about 150 all year on, on change-ups as well. So, you know, if you, if you sequenced him right, you could definitely pick him apart. And without Anthony Rendon, I don't think the Nationals are, are hoping that Starlin Castro is the answer, though he'll probably hit third or fourth in this lineup. Uh, but I think you have to think to yourself, okay, what are the other – ways on the margins that we can improve our offense that that we can by committee make up for the lost production there and I think Victor Robles has to be a part of that whether he you know you use his speed and and bump him up to the top of the lineup somewhere or you know put him maybe sixth or seventh I don't know I don't think they know what that looks like yet but a big part of what the Nationals need if they are to maintain a similar offensive output includes Victor Robles' development against breaking pitches and and being able to kind of, uh, like you said, play discipline and and sort of become a more complete hitter. So a third of the lineup is composed of 21 or 22-year-olds, so there is a young core here that could sustain the Nationals for some time to come. But the farm system is not what it was, and in fact, I believe Baseball Prospectus ranked it maybe dead last in the most recent annual so how much of a concern is the Nationals having a, a pipeline of young players to keep this thing going? Yeah, I think that's a, that is somewhat of a concern. Obviously, they won the World Series, so I think that afterglow <laughs> is maybe minimizing right. that effect. And, and Luis Garcia hit a home run yesterday. Uh, their prospect, who profiles as a, a second baseman, I think plays shortstop you know, right now, or that's what they have him listed as. They, they like him a lot, so I think there's like uh, some top-heavy talent, and and they really like some of their pitchers that they've drafted high in the last couple of years, Jackson Rutledge, Tim Kate, Mason Denneberg. But as you pointed out, I think, you know, if, if you look, if you look at it too long or, or if you look at it in the mindset of, you know, okay, what does this mean for our future? I do think that there, there are some concerns there about the sustainability and, and what you would sort of hope to, uh, to glean from that system, you know, four or five years down the line. All right, so we end each of these segments by asking for a win total prediction. And Nationals, uh, the grace period is in full effect here. They're coming off not just the championship, but an extremely exciting championship where they kept coming back over and over again. They saved baseball from the Astros being the reigning champions again. There's uh, a lot of goodwill here, but Nationals fans would still like to win as many games as possible in 2020. So how many wins do you foresee? With the full understanding that that I am essentially throwing a, a dart at a dartboard here, 
uh, with my eyes closed, something like that. I would say probably 91, 92 wins feels right. Maybe a little bit lower than that if, if the offensive production and, and third base are not able to be what they'd hope. But I still feel like this team has a, has a really strong rotation. Um, I don't think they're going to get off to the bad start they did last year. So, so somewhere around 92 wins is, is what feels right to me. All right. You can follow the national season at the Washington Post. Sam Fortier will be bringing you some of the paper's coverage. And you can find him on Twitter at Sam and the number four and the letters TR. Thank you very much, Sam. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I've listened to this podcast for a long time, so this is really cool. Thank you very much. Okay, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a minute with Alec Lewis to talk about the Royals. Oh, for me, I'm always looking for a way out. From now on with the sky as my roof From now on let the risk lead me to From now on somewhere I never knew From now on call me Ruby Alright, we are back and we are joined now by Alec Lewis who covers the Kansas City Royals and co-authors great Zach Grinke oral histories for The Athletic and is on a brief break from spring training back in Kansas City but still working on Royal stories and taking some time out of one to join us now. Hey Alec, how's it going? I'm good, I'm good. It's going good guys. Thank you for having me. Interesting time for the Kansas City Royals for sure. They... um is it? Is uh, there's been a lot of to say. <laughs> been a lot of ch- yeah. You, you do you do as much as you can to find the storylines that might be interesting. But no, there's been a lot of change, and that to me has been interesting. So yeah, I assume we'll talk about. It. Yeah. So well, the Royals are coming off a lot of losing. So uh, <laughs> 104 last season, followed by a 103 last season, and your occasional colleague at the Athletic and my occasional colleague at the Ringer, Randy Chazerly, recently wrote that if you're going to lose 103 games, it's a much better sign <laughs> if you do so on purpose than by accident. So to what degree has this been purposeful? Are the Royals passively losing here or are they losing with an eye toward losing less in the future? I will say you're not going to hear one person within that organization tell you that losing has, of course, been a priority. And I I mean, it's interesting. I am in really my, my second year of this started last year around this time. And through conversations, I mean, obviously that's something you, you you try to look for. I mean, is it part of that passive understanding of like, look, we just don't have the tools and we are going to let this play out the way it is. But ahead of this season, I do think there has kind of been a rebirth in terms of them believing that they can win more than, than I think they've believed in years past. And I think there are a number of reasons you can attribute that to. I think the new energy probably that manager Mike Matheny has brought and owner John Sherman have probably contributed to that rebirth of maybe belief. I also think, I mean, you have Salvador Perez back and the fan favorite that he is probably provides people some kind of positive light for people to believe. But I holistically, I think we're to the point now that they obviously – and this just the Royals, but they, they don't like using the word rebuild. They don't right. want to use it anymore. The stable of pitching prospects that have all come from the 2018 MLB draft, I think have also contributed to them believing they're closer than, than in years past. So 
while in past years they have not used the word rebuild very much and they have not put an emphasis on on losing for the benefit i think after having drafted bobby witt jr second in last year's draft it makes sense that the losing has since has paid off to retool the farm system which has been their number one goal the last couple of years how much do you think that farm system is retooled? The sense that I get, I mean, I guess the sense that I get partly is that over the last few years, it's been, we've seen fewer dramatic turnarounds of farm systems of bad teams that, uh, unlike a few years ago, where it seemed like there was a spate of teams that had gone from like, you know, bottom half to top five within a, you know, within a, a couple of trade deadlines, the teams that have been stuck in the losing mode right now, including the Royals and some other teams that we're going to be talking about later in this series, haven't really jumped that much that quickly. The Royals were at the very bottom a couple years ago, but it seems to me, from what I read, are kind of just in the middle right now. So I don't know, I guess two parts of that question. One is, do you disagree with that assessment of their farm system? And two, whether you disagree or not, is there any sort of like impatience or, or disappointment that even after 200 plus lost seasons, they haven't uh, really gotten that close to any sort of sense of inevitability? To your first question, I mean, I think that that ranking of probably midway, 15th, 17th, 18th, that's kind of where most of these rankings have the Royals. And I think, I don't, I don't think that's very bold. I don't think that's inaccurate. I mean, I think that's pretty spot on to where the Royals are. I mean, look, the 2018 draft was one where they had two Compensation picks, obviously, after losing Eric Hosmer and Lorenzo Kane, those ended up being college pitchers. And the Royals drafted, I believe, five pitchers to start that draft. It was Brady Singer, who some before that draft had considered one of the top pitchers in the draft out of Florida. And then Jackson Coar, Daniel Lynch, Chris Bubich, and then Austin Cox. The first four are all in big, big league spring training now. So while, yes, these rankings, I think, are pretty accurate I, and some of these pitchers have come along really quick and I think the Royals are I mean you have starting you have four starting pitchers from that draft competing as starters in big league spring training this year I think they are wildly happy with that to your second question I mean is there an impatience I think yeah there's an impatience in the sense that look like th it's been a struggle I mean everybody in the organization will tell you losing two <laughs> 100 losses. I mean, it takes years off of these people's lives. I mean, I, Royals general manager Dave Morris said that. Um, you, you've heard some players, Whit Merrifield continually gets very upset at losing. I mean, he's just not, he's a competitive guy, doesn't like it. So I think the, the impatience is there. I do believe, though, the Royals feel, I, I think comfortable would be an okay word with the starting pitching that has come along. I mean, I, I Daniel Lynch, Brady Singer, and Jackson Coar have all and, and Chris Bubich have all thrown on the same days of spring training. They've, they've pitched against premier talent. I mean, Brady Singer pitched against the Cubs the other day. I believe it was Javier Baez, Rizzo, and Chris Bryant. He faced, he forced all of them out. And, and while ranking and prospect lists don't have a guy like Brady Singer, often in their top 100s, I think the Royals are really happy with his progression and the progression of his changeup. So, I think comfortable would be an okay word with the farm system. They're not where they want to be, but they're def they've definitely improved over the last two years. And as you mentioned, in this day and age, it's kind of hard, I think, and they view this too, it's hard to just flip-flop a farm system in, in a way that may have been possible in years past.
You mentioned the sale of the team from David Glass to John Sherman, and Sherman hasn't been very vocal since he took over the team, but do you have any sense of what type of owner he's likely to be? Will he be aggressive? Will he delegate a lot of decisions to his baseball people? And how much can fans expect him to invest in the team? I think early on, delegation is probably going to be his strategy. I mean, he's really invested. There's no question about it. I I think I mean, this for him, he's from Kansas City. He grew up here. He has a family here. He's lived here. And while he he was a minority owner with the Indians, I mean, he's a major Royals fan. I think he was overseas in Europe during the World Series in 2014 and ended up left it and flew back for one or two of the games. He's a really invested guy in the Royals and in Kansas City. So I, I think early on his approach, you're you're right, he hasn't spoken very much, but when he has, he has kind of spoken about how early on his goal is to see how this organization is run, see how I think both from the business side and um, from the baseball side. I mean, they, they've recently been in contract negotiations on a, on a new television contract. So I think that's been a major focus for him early. In the second week of spring training, he was out there, spent a lot of time out on the field with Dayton Moore. And I think the two, are, it, I think the styles of each are going to be interesting to see how they kind of coalesce. Again, Sherman comes from Cleveland that obviously carries the, the strategy that they carry. I, I do think, though, similar to David Glass, when the Royals were, were ready to spend and prove that one or two players could put them over the top, I mean, David Glass spent that money, and I, I do believe John Sherman will spend when it's necessary. That's obviously not right now, I think. With where the Royals are, one or two players won't do very much for them. So I, I don't think it's a necessity yet. But I do get the feeling that he's going to take it kind of slow and probably making his mark. I think he wants to know the ins and outs of the entire organization before he starts to push certain buttons. How is he rich and, and how rich is he? <laughs> I don't know the actual, his net worth. I, I probably should. I do know he's an entrepreneur. He actually believed, went to school, a small school outside of Kansas City called Ottawa. He ended up in energy. He built his, he built a business through energy, ended up in, on many advisory boards. But he is also, I mean, I, as I mentioned, he, he's been a minority owner with the Indians and he's a really big baseball fan. He loves the game. I think he loves the business side of it, which could go either way, probably in this day and age and how people view that. But but I, I genuinely do believe, I mean, he's on certain boards in Kansas City in terms of, I mean, for education, I talked to former mayor about him and, and people in the city rave about him. It will be interesting to see kind of how his approach to baseball in Kansas City changes. But I, I do know he has that entrepreneurial vibe. And that's when we first met with him as, as beat writers, that's, something that kind of came across. He, he feels he's a very happy-go-lucky guy and is fortunate and knows he's fortunate to be in the position he is, but doesn't take that for granted. My dream is definitely to get rich by being on advisory boards. <laughs> <laughs> is that the um, way I... Yeah, that's probably the way that came across. But no, I mean, this is a guy who, who built his... He, energy was his tool of trade, uh, okay. uh, not advisory boards. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The most, probably, the, I don't know if this is actually true, but if it is, the most significant thing we know about him as a possible owner is that he is apparently, according to John Heyman, a big 
Dayton Moore fan, admirer of Dayton Moore. And uh, as Heyman wrote in November, Heyman wrote, my understanding is that Dayton Moore, once this is approved, will receive a long extension and be there for a long time. And, you know, it's interesting because when GMs get hired, we tend to think that they're hired because uh, a decision was made that that GM was the most qualified, the best that there was. Uh, available and the 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 one most likely to perform the best going forward. But as soon as they're in the job, then their continued employment becomes in, in some sense uh, seen as a, an issue of accountability. If they're winning, if they're successful, then they get to stay. And if they're losing and they're unsuccessful, um, then maybe someone has to go and that could be the GM. And so Dayton Moore has had, you know, basically a blip of great success in a long career with the Royals, and now the Royals are doing quite poorly. Does it surprise you at all that that there would be a show of commitment to him, that, that Dayton Moore would be seen as the long-term future of this team under new ownership? Um, and do you believe that that report or uh is it and forgive me maybe he's already signed an extension since Heyman wrote that but assuming he hasn't is it conceivable that in fact a new owner maybe wouldn't want a new gm right away because it would uh he would rely on the gm's institutional knowledge that he the new owner does not have so uh, i don't know you you can answer some of that <laughs> <laughs> no 100 percent. i mean i i think First of all, first off, I can't confirm John Heyman's reporting there. I, I just, I can't do that. I don't, it's funny. Dayton's contract is kind of a form of, uh, it's a very private contract and it always has been here in Kansas City. So I, to speak on that, it would be pure speculation. I will say your point about a new owner wanting to rely on the knowledge and kind of the, the steward of the place for the last 14 years, I think. That, that's what's important to John Sherman. I think before he would come in and, and make any rac- radical change or probably before he'd come in and, and make some long-term <laughs> commitment, I think he wants to understand and, and view it from the perspective of what, what's going on, what has gone on, why are we in the position that we are. And I think that's what John Sherman will do. I think, I mean, I will say Dayton Moore is very tied into to the city of Kansas City. What he did here. And 2014 and 15 has not been forgotten. Although there were, there are people that are frustrated, obviously and understandably, with the struggles that they've had the last couple of years. But I don't know. I think this year will be an interesting year in terms of a John Sherman getting to know this organization and probably making judgments after that. I also think it'll be interesting to see if the Royals were to struggle the way they have the last two seasons, the response from both the community and ownership as a whole. I think ultimately, again, I can't confirm or deny that John Heyman reporting, but I I can say that John Sherman strikes me as a guy who is not going to jump to any rash conclusions, especially early or late. I think he will make sure he, he, he knows he's doing the right thing if he does anything, if that makes sense. So the other new decision maker you mentioned is Mike Matheny, and I think you wrote at some point this winter about the new Mike Matheny, the re-education of Mike Matheny. 
Obviously, he (laughs) won some games in St. Louis. He took some teams to the playoffs, but there was a widespread and I think fairly well-deserved perception that he was not a great tactical manager and maybe also that he had some bias toward veterans and was not great about integrating young players. So it was not particularly surprising to see the Royals hire Matheny, but will we be surprised by the new Matheny? Has he made a sincere effort to learn and improve as a manager, or do you think that's mostly spin? You know, I think he has made a, a sincere effort. I mean, it's hard for me. I, I wasn't there day to day as as he's not in the manager role. But I mean, a few things jumped to mind. I remember when he when when his name first surfaced and, and possibility for the job. I mean, obviously in my role, you do as much reading and research as you can. I think like Ben for Grantland, I remember you wrote something I, I believe on on bullpen management and included Matheny and and a bunch of other managers, but obviously the, the, the bullpen management or probably lack thereof and, and the issues that he had in terms of communication, you mentioned young players, there were, there was reporting about Bud Norris kind of merciless writing, quote unquote, Jordan Hicks. Mm-hmm. There was a, a report that Mike Matheny was not on speaking terms with Dexter Fowler. I think all that goes back to, I mean, there's the bullpen management part and then there's the player management part. And I think, Mike, in the year that he he was not a manager, spent a lot of time in the Royals organization and, and outside of it. I mean, he as you mentioned, he took an, an analytics course and I believe kind of had some of his decisions nitpicked and provided feedback on. He also, he did kind of a media training. I think another issue that he had in St. Louis was he, and maybe for right or wrong, viewed the media as a very adversarial opponent for him, I think. And so, Early on, I mean, in the year that he spent with the Royals, he, he spent time with most everyone in the organization, from first base coach Rusty Kuntz to front office executive Scott Shaw. I mean, he spent time with everyone, and and I think the reviews were pretty rave from from most everybody, if not everybody. And so his hiring was understandable. Look, this challenge that the Royals have right now in terms of how young the roster is and the prospects that are coming up. It, it, it's going to show, I think, in time how his player management skills have or have not developed. I think time will tell. But I can say, I mean, from a from a media perspective, through working with him since he was hired, I mean, it it, it has been uh, he's been insightful. He's been helpful. He, he's been, I think, very introspective in terms of of how he kind of wanted to improve as a person. I, I think since getting fired, and so. Thus far, I mean, any player, any any organizational staff that you've talked to, I haven't heard one bad thing on or off the record about Mike Matheny. So uh, I think thus far, while, yes, it is obviously incredibly, incredibly early, I mean, that's all you could hope for at this point. So, you know, at the end of the 2018 season, Adalberto Mondesi just had this massive power spike. He slugged, you know, about 600 in the final quarter of the season. And, and going into the year, um, I was I was really super high on him. I thought that he had emerged as a, as a superstar. And I don't know, maybe the two two of the big stories at the major league level for the Royals last year was one that Mondesi had a real down season and his his power did not appear to be real after all. And the other is that Jorge Soler had a, a monster season and uh, developed a, a ton of power and, and was a, a huge a revelation. If you had to bet on on one of those, you know, 2019s being real, Mondesi's disappointment or Soler's breakout, which one would you uh, would you bet on? Right now, at this point, I would say Jorge Soler, and it's simply it's 
probably as much Solaire as it is Montesi. I mean, look, Alberto Montesi has struggled to stay healthy for the duration of his career. And that's, that, I mean, it, maybe that's unfortunate. I mean, this past season in 2019, it was, he dove for a ball, a foul ball and landed on his left shoulder. It was a shoulder subluxation, they called it. And then they gave it a month to rehab. He returned and then on a diving for a ground ball, he, it popped back out. So he ended up having surgery. So he's, rehabbing his way back through surgery he hasn't played in a spring training game yet the reports are that he will be on track for opening day that said can he maintain health for a full season before last season that was the question about Jorge Soler I mean he just he struggled to to remain healthy and then finally once he did after another offseason of work with now Royal Special Assignment hitting coach Mike Tozar he had the breakout season he still worked with Tozar he still remained healthy so I think for me, it's it's probably the easier answer to say that Solaire's breakout is more likely to continue in 2020. That said, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to assess Monesty's power numbers because, again, he hasn't stayed healthy. So, I mean, more than power, I think the goal for Monesty and, and from the Royals' perspective, the goal for Monesty should be just get him through an entire season season healthy. And again, he's going to play shortstop. He's going to want to play shortstop. He's been exceptional at the position, but he's got to remain healthy for him to be able to progress like Jorge Soler did last year. So I, to answer your question, I would say I think Jorge Soler's power continues to to shine in 2020. Along with Soler, sometimes playing in the outfield, you have Whit Merrifield in center field, you have Hunter Dozier in right, you have Alex Gordon back in left. But then you also have two somewhat younger players, Bubba Starling and Brett Phillips, who are looking for playing time and I believe are out of minor league options. So the Royals have to find them some playing time somewhere. Does either of them emerge into a more full-time role or can they be useful bench pieces this year? I think right now it it appears that they'll probably reside in the, the bench piece area. I mean, look, Alex Gordon's 36, so he will probably earn more time off from left field than he has in years past. And when he does, I think that's where Bubba or Brett, as you mentioned, they're both out of options. I think that's where they could fill in. But neither have really proven over a long period of time that they can add much at the plate. I mean, they've both struggled against off-speed pitches. And, well, yeah, if you go look at the spring training numbers right now, you'll think Bubba Starling is is uh, it's his time uh those are spring training numbers and so i think it's 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 hard to say that bubba or brett phillips could earn more consistent spots given that they haven't proven themselves at the plate i do think if you look at the royals roster i mean I, as you mentioned wit is likely to start in center and hunter dozier in right field if adalberto Mondesi doesn't start on opening day or, or can't stay healthy that likely pushes Nicky Lopez, the shortstop, and then Witt to second base, which would open opportunities for Bubba or Brett Phillips. But I think right now, I mean, they're both obviously great in the outfield and, and both have speed that can be a weapon on a base path. But I just, as of right now, it feels like the outfield and the majority of the outfield is, is going to be played by Alex Gordon, Whit Merrifield, and, and Hunter Dozier. You wrote about Brett Keller adding a curveball this winter. Keller's kind of become the de facto ace of the Royals, which is not saying that much, but he's been good. He's been especially good for a Rule 5 pick. So do you believe that that curveball can catapult him even higher, or will he just continue to be Royals good? 
You know, I think he could, I think it could catapult him higher. And I say that solely because then talking to him and there was like a, a genuine sincerity in his conviction, I think happiness in the pitch. And I guess as any athlete, competitive athlete, you could argue that of course they're going to be convicted and confident in something that they're doing. But Brad, I mean, in the Royals clubhouse, and this is not to take away, Brad is about as honest and, and easygoing as possible. I, it's not like I, I came to him with that. He, he was like, yeah, I was doing this thing. I'm really happy with it. The curveball to kind of drop down and, and provide another weapon against the hitter's timing. He seemed pretty convicted in it. And I think it could catapult him. Look, he's, he's still really young. His, it, you're, as you mentioned, his story is kind of wild as being a rule five pick and now essentially the de facto ace of this Rose current staff. But I think he feels like there's another level. And towards the end of last year, he had some, the Royals shut him down just due to innings, but I believe they think he can go longer this year. I also think they think some of the command issues that he had during the middle of the season can be shored up. So curveball or not, I think there's a belief that he could take a step. How big will that step be? I, I It's hard to say, but I, I don't, I wouldn't expect a major step, but I, I do think he's still young enough to where the Royals really, really believe him. I and mean, he's put together outings that have been really impressive. So last year, everybody was really excited because Kyle Zimmer um, was was poised to to come back to make it back, and uh, it was a pretty disastrous season uh, for him. He, he he did pitch in the majors, so that was cool, but uh, he was extremely wild. He walked more than a batter an inning. It looked, you know, like I mean, just looking at his overall line, it looks like it was it was chaos. But you know, like his strike rate was just normal wild pitcher. It wasn't like disastrous wild pitcher strike rate. So it's not like he wasn't throwing strikes at all. And his wild pitch rate and his hit by pitch rate are not those of a uh, pitcher who has absolutely no idea where he's throwing. So was there any like hope that uh, coming out of that season that that you saw that eh, this was just sort of like uh, finding it and that there's still maybe is a future there? Or is he really, really, really wild? Yeah, I think Kyle... It, it was funny. I remember a conversation that he and I had probably the last week uh, of the season, and he had been up and down between Omaha and Kansas City and back and forth, and obviously finally making it to the big leagues with how, how the road that it took to get there. I just I think mentally for him, the grind that it was is almost like you can't put a value to to how much that probably took. Off him, I mean, there was a time during the year where he stopped throwing his curveball, couldn't command, he was just throwing a hard slider and fastball. There were times where he he would go back down to Omaha and cut out the windup and just go from the stretch. It, it was kind of just, it was nonstop trying to work things out. I, I think, to your point, I mean, the wild pitcher elements that he has I, thus far through spring training, it's not like he's shown anything even in lives or, or side sessions that, would prove that wrong. I, I do. I do think though that an off season of kind of just sitting, relaxing, chilling, and while maybe it's it's that's kind of cliche. I think for him that was important, and he seems to have a really good attitude right now. The Major League Baseball granted granted the role as a fourth option with him, so whether he starts in the bigs or not, I, I, it probably remains to be seen. But I don't know. It's not like the velo is gone. I mean, he still hits 98-99 and has during this spring training and sits there with now the curveball is back and the slider as well. So 
as you mentioned, if, if, if the mechanics can be refined to a level that, that makes sense for a guy like Kyle who's been through so many arm injuries, I, I think there's something there. I think at this point, it's gravy what the Royals could get from him. The velocity still being there, I think, has some people hopeful. And Kyle seems to be now, and talking to him, I think, last week, just a, the, <laughs> you could just tell in terms of stress, relaxation level compared to that conversation we had at the end of last season, it, it's kind of wild in terms of that difference. But the fourth option is, is something that also will play a role. And lastly, I think the Royals made so few moves over the offseason. I think the only free agent they signed to a major league deal from outside the organization is Michael Franco. So is there someone, some holdover who could be poised to be better? We talked about Mondesi, but someone lower profile, I don't know, Nicky Lopez or Ryan O'Hearn or Jacob Junis or Danny Duffy, even Mike Montgomery, someone who is still around but could be better this year in an appreciable way. You know, I think all of those, you, you could argue maybe there's been a lot of talk about Ryan O'Hearn and taking another step. Mike Bettini has spoken very highly of him. Nicky Lopez is put on weight and I think he, he feels as if his swing and miss in the big league kind of tailed off to them the season I think he, he feels like he can continue it that way but for me the guy that I've heard most about and and I think that's impressed the people most in terms of a low profile guy is Josh Stamont he's obviously a former top prospect for the Royals he been the entire offseason kind of refining his mechanics thus far in spring he sat like 99 to 101, his curveball has, he's been able to not only control it, but also command it. I think he's a guy in the bullpen that, that has kind of a high power arm that you rarely see. He's only 26 years old, very intuitive guy. I think the Royals are really happy with where he is. They've also signed, I mean, I think the bullpen is one of the more interesting elements for, for Royals fans, <laughs> interesting for Royals fans, specifically Greg Holland is back with the Royals. He's on a minor league deal, but he's been impressive thus far in camp. And Trevor Rosenthal is a guy who has been able to control his pitches at 99 miles per hour. So I think if the Royals feel like if they can get something out of one of those two guys and also have a guy like Josh Stamont step up, they could possibly be better in areas that, that they are not expected to be. All right. Well, tell us how much better you think they will be. How many games will the Royals win in 2020? Ah, the prediction. I'll say 71. It's not going up, but I believe Vegas has around 66. I think 71 with this club makes sense. Obviously, injury dependent, but there's my prediction that you can hold to the fire. All right. Trust the process, I guess. (laughs) Indeed. By the way, you mentioned Salvi coming back and how everyone's happy to have him back. Statistically speaking, that doesn't project to be a major move because of his plate discipline issues and framing issues. But in terms of intangibles or clubhouse, whatever it is that he provides, was he able to provide that while hurt, while coming back from Tommy John surgery, just because he was around? Or do you have to be playing and an active participant for whatever that intangible effect is to take effect? I think it obviously helps if you're playing. I mean, he was around for sure. He was in the clubhouse on on days before games, not all of them, but some. He went on a few road trips. I remember he was, there was one in, in Boston and Fenway. He was there, and, and it was, I think, the first time he caught a bullpen. So 
I don't know how pal- those intangibles, obviously, you can never put a value on that. But I, I do think in terms of his progression, catchers going through Tommy John surgery is an interesting past. One of the catchers that has is Vance Wilson, who's now the Royals' third base coach. He actually had two Tommy John surgeries as a catcher. So Salvi lean on him a lot. It will be interesting to see. You mentioned the plate discipline issues. I know Salvi has worked with Mike Tozar, who I mentioned earlier, who, who worked with Solaire this offseason, and I believe is, is somewhat optimistic at the plate. But again, coming back from Tommy John as a catcher, you never know. I, I think the optimism that I mentioned is largely kind of a byproduct of when fans come to the game, you're seeing a guy that, that, that really resonates. And, and I think regardless of play, he'll provide that this year. All right. Well, you can find Alec on Twitter at Alec underscore Lewis. You can read him at The Athletic. He says that it's an interesting time for the Royals, and he will try to (laughs) make it one, (laughs) even if the Royals aren't really holding up their end of the bargain. Thank you, Alec. (laughs) Thank you, guys. I appreciate you guys do really good work. Thank you for having me. All right, that will do it for today. Thank you for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Derek Dixon, Cade Madsen, Christopher West, Samir Redigari, and Foolish Baseball, purveyor of fine baseball YouTube videos, I might add. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast.fangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. I am off for the rest of this week. I will be skiing and trying not to catch the coronavirus as I jet across the country. Sam and Meg will be your able hosts for the next couple of episodes. I look forward to listening to them along with you. So I will talk to you next week and they will talk to you a little later this week. Thank you, Alec. I'm. I can't believe I said that. And I. I, I mean, I guess. I. I can't. I guess. I guess for me, like, how am I going to stay sane if I don't? If it's if it's not interesting to me, yeah, right? Sure. I, don't, I don't know. You got to talk yourself into it. At least. <laughs> yeah, it's your yeah, job. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Good luck, man. <laughs> yeah.